Thomas got a kind of a bad rap for this whole deal. They call him Doubting Thomas, but we need to remember he took the gospel further geographically than any of the other disciples all the way to India, and so we need to give him props for that. Uh, Before I pray and begin the sermon, I just want to uh, mention that we were possibly going to have a meeting after church today. We're not going to be able to do that, but we've had a number of people over the past uh, month or two especially that have asked questions about church security and that kind of thing. Um, And I want to assure you that we are, uh, the deacons have a security plan and we're always reviewing that plan. We're looking at things that we could do to do even a better job. We want to make sure as much as is we're able to do, that we're taking good care of all of you while you're here, the church property, our children, and everybody. And so if you have anything that you are concerned about, bring to my attention any of the elders or governing board members, the deacons. Uh, Gary's our head deacon. Raise your hand, Gary. So uh, they're always considering how can we make the church a better and safer place. So we just want you to rest assured that we are working on that. We're thinking about that all the time. And uh, we're aware of what's going on in the world, and we're aware that people have concerns, so thank you for that. Before we begin the sermon, let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for uh, the privilege we have to have Christ. And Lord, even as uh, we celebrated Resurrection Sunday last week, every Sunday is the Lord's day. Every Sunday, Lord, we celebrate what you've done for us. May we do so throughout the week as well, constantly being reminded of the hope that we have in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. May your word go forth this morning, Lord, with the power of your Holy Spirit that touches people's hearts, that takes hearts of stone and turns them into flesh, that convicts people of their sins and convinces them of the truth. May it be done in our midst, Lord, To your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're back into Luke chapter 4, where we were also last week, um, and we're continuing to look at where Jesus spoke at the synagogue there in his boyhood hometown. Um, I have a subtitle there, um, Perfect Preaching Provokes Punishment. Now, I want to be clear that there's only one perfect preacher, And so our big idea is that Jesus, the perfect preacher, provoked some of his listeners to want to kill him. And so last week, we began looking at that passage where Jesus, again, he was in the Messiah, uh, uh, the Messiah context of, of Isaiah, that passage where he talks about the servant, and he tells the people, more or less, that I am the servant that Isaiah was prophesying And this was at the synagogue where Jesus had grown up. So many people there had known Jesus as a boy. And he had already become a bit famous, having traveled around Galilee, teaching and being glorified by all. So we can imagine then the normal human attitudes that may have existed. He healed elsewhere. He must be planning something really amazing for his hometown, they might have thought. Surely he would do some of his very best work within his own clan. At the same time, there's that old phrase, familiarity breeds contempt. In other words, we seem to have less appreciation sometimes with those we're close to uh, because when they accomplish something, we remember that 
they weren't always like that. History may record some great things about certain heroes in the course of things, yet if you dig deep into biographies and you will often find that if someone interviews an old family member or someone that was an old co-worker or whatever, they're not quite as impressed sometimes, are they? If you really had to be around him all day, they might say, you would not have thought so highly of him. You just couldn't even live with him. And we can see that it's very common for someone with a sort of celebrity status who everyone seems to love, yet those closest to them often have other opinions, right? Yet Jesus had no flaws, no behavioral problems that could cause anyone to think lowly of him. And even still, many people were so angered by his message that they did not just want him to go away, they wanted to kill him. If the perfect one had that many haters, we should not be surprised that very imperfect men who preach also get folks riled up, especially when they stick as closely as possible to Scripture. And that's because people who have not been born again, that is, they have not been regenerated by God's Holy Spirit to be able to receive the good news about Jesus and believe it, his word will offend people. It will cause people, for various reasons, to get quite angry with the preacher. And this is why, in part, that Jesus promised they would hate his followers. John 15, 18, he said, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. It was a natural progression that if they hated Jesus, they would hate his followers. So with all of those initial thoughts in mind, let us read our main text for this morning. I'm going to read back from where we began last week at verse 14, and then we're going to go through verse 30, but we're going to primarily focus on verses 23 to 30. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote, quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. 
And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha, but none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Again, our focus right now is verses 23 to 30. And if you missed last week's message, you can go back and listen uh, on our new church app, by the way, or you can go on our website and you can listen to that. But you can learn about how Jesus applied Isaiah 61 to himself. But this morning, we're going to consider what happened after he read that passage and, and he began to teach. So Jesus read the passage and then said, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. They all spoke well of him. They marveled at his gracious words. It seems like for now, they were receptive of the word of God that Jesus was teaching them. But then they began to remember that he, this is Joseph's son. Who is he to tell us anything? You know, we keep hearing about these miracles he performs. Why hasn't he performed any here? And Jesus, of course, he knows what they're getting at. We know from other places in the Gospels that Jesus often knew what people were thinking about as the Holy Spirit revealed it to him. So now he realizes that they are beginning to find ways to dismiss him. And by dismissing him, they dismiss the teaching. And so he says in verse 23, doubtless you will Quote to me this proverb, physician, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do in your hometown as well. A proverb is a saying that's generally true or common precept to live by. So physician, heal yourself was apparently a common proverb at this time, and it shares similarities to many other sayings and teachings. For example, Jesus taught that before someone go and remove a speck from their brother's eye, they should get the law out of their own eye. So there's some similarity there. Physician, heal yourself, generally meant that a physician, if he wanted to be of any help to anyone, he better keep himself healthy. If you went to your doctor and their eyes were bloodshot and they were wheezing every time they stood up or they had slurred speech or they were really poorly dressed, you may feel less confident than if you go to your doctor and they appear healthy and uh, on the ball and dressed well. You may want, not want to trust your life with someone who's stumbling around. There's also an extension to this proverb, and that was understood by many, and that is that not only should a physician make sure themselves are healthy, but they should focus on the health of those closest to them first, their family, close neighbors, etc. In other words, you ought not to go out to heal people far away if you haven't taken care of those right in your own backyard. I used to have this sort of objection because I knew people that would travel a long way to go on a mission trip, but then their own co-workers didn't even have a clue that they were Christians. You went on a mission trip, their colleague might say. I didn't even know you went to church. And so it may be in many cases, this proverb, physician, heal yourself, could apply to us and to our faith. And so this is why a qualification for elders is they must manage their own household well, 1 Timothy 3.5. If someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of God's church? 
And so it is pretty well understood and quite sensible that whatever someone's specialty is, they should first apply it well in their own case if they want to be helpful to others. And Jesus understood this is what they were thinking, so he continued and said, what we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Ah, now we get to what they were really interested in. They wanted the miracles. Throughout his ministry, Jesus encountered people whose only interest in him was his ability to do miracles. Here in his own town, they wanted miracles as well. In fact, it seems they were not going to believe the good reports about him unless he did some miracles among them. But just as many others who Jesus encountered, their desire for seeing a miracle was not combined with a love for the truth he taught. They wanted to see something wonderful, perhaps for themselves or for a family member, some relief to some suffering. Maybe they wanted their water turned into wine. What they didn't want was the truth. Verse 24, and he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Familiarity breeds contempt. These people who knew Jesus well, now they wanted something from him. There could be another component here. In my life, I've met many people who grew up in very different situations, some very poor in a dangerous neighborhood, whatever the case may be. And one example is a young man I worked with when I was a young man. <laughs> it, it was true once. Um, when I was in the Marines, and this, this uh, man had grown up in a very rough part of Harlem, part of New York City. His family was very poor. He lived in a very dangerous neighborhood. And no one ever left the neighborhood. No one had even gone to college. No one had gone into the military from his family. So this young man, his name was Corporal Kelly, joined the Marines. And while he was in, he took care of advantage of every educational opportunity he could find. When other guys were out uh, partying around or whatever, he was back in his barracks and he was doing on, uh, correspondence course. There wasn't online courses then. But he was doing correspondence courses to prepare himself to go to college after he got out. And just before he was discharged, he received word that he had attained a full-ride scholarship for the prestigious Brown University. He was so proud. He just should have been. And I don't know what degree he pursued, but based on his work ethic that I witnessed, I have no doubt that he went on to do very well in life. Now, how can a guy like that go back to his own hometown? In fact, others I've talked to who have left tough situations and did well, either professionally or economically, and returned home with their success, found that their family and neighbors, rather than being happy and proud of them, were angry and betrayed. They felt betrayed that someone left there and went and did better. That they had the audacity to achieve something their friends and neighbors had never done. Instead of being loved for it, they were despised. You may know someone like that. You may be someone like that. It's not unusual that this happens. In this case, Jesus sees exactly what's going on. No prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But if they were already growing tired of Jesus, what he says next will really get them riled up. Starting in verse 25, he says, But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, 
to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Jesus gives these two examples of when God did something favorable for Gentiles when at the same time he had not done the same for Israel. Both of these stories come from the books of First and Second Kings. First, Elijah had ministered to a widow who believed in faith that Elijah's word was true. Elijah had her take a step of faith, and with her last flour and her last oil, she was to prepare him a cake, and it was the last food she had, her and her son. She was going to prepare this last little food and then wait to die. There was a drought. There was no provision. She had no food stamps, no Walmart, no way to go purchase a little more food, no work to earn income. And now comes Elijah. Elijah, sorry. 1 Kings 17, 10. So he arose and went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug, and now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me, and afterward make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said, and she and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, Neither did the jug of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord that he had spoken by Elijah. So Jesus recalls this story. And his emphasis on the story was not the woman's faith, although that's clearly part of the story. His emphasis is not in the kindness of God, even though that is a big part of the story. The emphasis Jesus puts on this story is an emphasis that makes the people in the synagogue very angry His emphasis is that Elijah did not help a Jewish woman. He helped a woman of Sidon. The Jewish people found this to be offensive since they believed in their favored status with God as his chosen people. Next, Jesus gives another example of God showing favor to a Gentile. And this is in 2 Kings chapter 5. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She, asked, she said to her mistress, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord, thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. 
And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which said, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come to now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean." But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. See, he wanted a show involved in the whole thing. And then he said, Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, Wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. So this happens, and the king of Israel, when he gets this message from the king of Syria, he thought this was a tactic to have an excuse to cause a war. Even he did not see any possibility of a leper being healed. So this really would infuriate the Jews because the story of Naaman shows he really didn't even have any faith and even was a scoffer, and yet he was urged on by his servants and seems like he went begrudgingly into the Jordan River, and Naaman became such a believer after this that he asked for loads of dirt that he could bring with him so he could make an altar for himself on the ground of Israel. There are a few things Jesus is saying without saying them explicitly to the people here. He's saying to them, you are in unbelief. You think you know me because I grew up here. And you feel that therefore you can dismiss, dismiss my words. You are no different than many Israelites before you who lived in unbelief and because of their unbelief they missed out on many of God's blessings. Jesus also knows that this is not it's not the miracles themselves that people find their faith in. It's the preaching of the word of God. This is very clear in scripture. Jesus even said in a parable, if they don't believe Moses and the prophets, they would not even believe if someone were raised from the dead. So why did he do any miracles of all, at all, the question might be asked. If, if faith does not come from, from observing miracles, but faith comes from the Holy Spirit doing a work in the heart of a spiritually dead person as they hear the gospel being preached so that they can believe that word. If miracles are not really a factor in that sense in true faith, why did Jesus do them then? Because even though faith comes through hearing and hearing the word of God, he graciously fortified the faith of those who believed by that same miracles. The miracles, however, also condemn further those who refuse to believe Jesus. He said in John chapter 7, verses 37, or I'm sorry, John chapter 10, verses 37 and 38, if I'm not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, 
Though, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. So what is Jesus saying there? That the works do not produce faith, but they are further evidence that he is who he says he is. He had just said moments ago in verse 25, I told you and you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. Not only were the works of Jesus, including his healings, bearing witness about him, they were also very merciful. Every miracle Jesus uh, did that we have recorded had a direct impact on the welfare of somebody. But in his hometown, he didn't do any miracles. These people had condemned themselves because of their unbelief. So again, the big idea, Jesus, the perfect preacher, provoked some of his listeners to want to kill him. Every preacher of God's word is imperfect, except God himself. Many of us preachers cause offense because we said something in an unnecessarily harsh way. Sometimes we offend because we act high and mighty. If the preacher offends in these ways, he should repent. But if the preaching and the teaching is the word of God, it will offend. There are many teachings of scripture that offend people today. People are offended that the Bible teaches things against the way they want to live or believe. We offend them when we take a strong position on the sanctity of life. We offend them when we take a strong position on the sanctity of marriage. We offend people when we call them out as gossips if we do that. We offend when we warn people of God's wrath because they want to believe in a God who's love, which in their opinion means that he should just pardon and forgive everyone regardless of whether they believe or not. We offend when we say that Jesus is the only way to heaven. We offend with the corollary of that statement, which is that any religion that is not the religion of Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, is a false religion. And that any false religion, by definition, is of Satan. It's not popular to tell people that their religion is antichrist or that it is satanic. Yet, this is the case for every religion that is not the biblical gospel of Jesus Christ. So, even some religions that claim Jesus as part of their belief system, if it falls short of the gospel, or in some cases, if it goes far beyond it, it's a false religion. And therefore, it's a church of Satan. If not in name, then certainly in practice. So many of these other religions have tried to look like they are true Christianity. Sadly, many denominations today have strayed so far from their origins that they are no longer teaching and preaching the true faith of the gospel, even though they started out that way. So I think one reason for that is because preachers are afraid to receive the wrath of people that comes when they teach the true word of God. They do not want to be reviled or disliked or mocked. They don't want to be subjected to what Jesus was subjected to, which was, we'll find in verse 28 to 30, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. They rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. 
But passing through their midst, he went away. They were filled with wrath. That word wrath had many possible translations. Anger, rage, outburst, excess. Sometimes it's translated nostrils, as in flaring nostrils. I'm so mad at you, my nostrils are going like this. Heat, poison, venom, indignation. These people have quickly turned into a mob. And I don't know if I'm reading too much into it, so maybe I am, but it doesn't seem like they even allowed the service to be finished. They were dragging him out before the synagogue service was even done. They didn't even stay for the closing prayer or the closing hymn or whatever they had. They went from listening nicely at first to questioning Jesus' qualifications. Isn't this Joseph's son? And then quickly moved on to anger, to murderous intentions. They want to throw him over the cliff. Now he escapes. Did he escape just because he slipped through and was clever? Or was it supernatural? The Bible doesn't specify how he did, but he escaped. Why did he escape? It wasn't his time yet. When it did become Jesus' time, he submitted to the trial. He submitted to the cross, but it was not time yet. He still had ministry to do. He still had truth to proclaim. So it wasn't time yet. God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, and Jesus himself, uh, he escaped from that situation. He He didn't get killed right then. His hometown then did not even receive him. These are the people who knew. I think I mentioned it last week that he, he, would have, he was the perfect little boy and then the perfect bigger boy and then the perfect teenager and the perfect man. Behavior-wise, no one could have said anything wrong about him. But they did not receive him. Those who do receive him become children of God. I'm going to close shortly here with one of my favorite. I have a lot of favorites. I'm, my girls will tell you I'm really bad with favorites because I can't ever pick a favorite. But um, not not a favorite girl. But I, I mean, I don't I don't have a favorite girl either. But uh, they'll say, "What's your favorite animal?" And I'm like, "I don't know." It's bad with favorites. But this is one of my favorite passages of scripture. John chapter one. I'm going to read all the way through verse 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word is Jesus there, by the way. If if anyone here is not familiar with that, I just want to explain that to you. The capital word there is Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. 
The true light, that, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. And here we go about his hometown. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is the Father at the Father's side. He has made him known. So as we look at what happened with Jesus here at his hometown synagogue, we have a lot of great lessons to remember and a lot of great encouragements to take with us. The biggest one I think we need to take is that Jesus was not loved by everyone for telling the truth. We just talked about that in D6 this morning. People will absolutely hate you sometimes because you tell the truth. They might even want to kill you at some point. But we have the promises of Christ. And if he was willing as our example to subject himself up to even the cross, then we ought to, as his followers, be willing to subject ourselves to whatever humiliation that may come because we are his. But the most important thing is to keep remembering the Lord's Day is Sunday for a reason. We remember the resurrection every Sunday. That resurrection of Jesus Christ guarantees to every believer that they will rise again. And because of that, when we are subjected to what we might even call at times hell on earth, we can trust that the Bible is true, that what he has told us he will do, he will do. And in the end, he will glorify us with himself. We will live eternally in a blissful state with Jesus Christ our Lord if we have faith in him through to the end. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for...